Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit. We ended, um, last week, we ended the Sermon on the Mount uh, back in Matthew 7. We'd been taking a couple months to go through Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 where Jesus preached this sermon. And we looked at that that life-changing verse that summed up, as Jesus said, summed up all of the Old Testament, summed up the entirety of his message for the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That active command, do unto others, be thinking about others, be putting other people first, be actively thinking about what you would like uh, to be done to you in a situation, and then go and do that for others. And we're skipping ahead over chapter uh, eight, and there's a few stories in chapter eight where the themes and the ideas are going to be picked up on later in the book of Matthew, and so we're going to spend a significant amount of time uh, on those things a little later. But we're going to jump ahead, uh, and we're going to hit uh, chapter nine today. When I had the opportunity to go uh, to Israel a few months ago, we went to the coolest little shop in downtown Jerusalem. And this wasn't a touristy type shop. This wasn't a place that just had little uh, worthless knickknacks, the keychains and the stuff that you normally bring back for people when you go and you travel someplace. This was really, really beautiful stuff. And almost all of it was, uh, was handmade, either hand-carved or hand-sewn or hand-painted. They had beautiful pottery. And I found something in this store for everyone in my family uh, to bring back. I found some beautiful... Uh, jewelry from Jerusalem and made in Jerusalem using uh, Jerusalem stones there for the girls. Uh, I found some great, well, great, they think they're great. I don't see the appeal, but like scarves and things like that. They were apparently really nice. Um, And then for my son, who has a thing for knives, um, Ethan, not William, uh, I bought a 200-year-old Jerusalem dagger. It's just, it's a really cool, uh, really cool knife. The only one that I was having trouble finding something for uh, was William. Because this place wasn't some place that had specific kids things. Uh, it wasn't some place that made shopping for kids easy. And so I thought I was going to have to go uh, to one of those other stores that had the more typical touristy uh, type things, like some stuffed animals. Or My kids love keychains. I think I did bring them back keychains for some reason. Uh, Olivia has like 79 keychains on her backpack. She walks like this with them. I'm, I don't see the appeal. Uh, but as I was getting ready to leave, I found something that I knew would be absolutely... Will doesn't... Hi, why are you in here, bud? How are you? Will's in here. You just want to hear Daddy speak? Yeah, at least there's one of you in here. That's good. Um, I found something that I knew William would love. And he doesn't know that I took this from his room today. But there's nothing specific... Other than the fact that it was made in Jerusalem, there's nothing specifically Israeli, uh, about this. But I was absolutely right. When I brought it home, William saw it, and he grabbed it, and he calls it his little, it's his spyglass. And the first thing he said was, now I can spy on Olivia. <laughs> I don't know if he meant our Olivia or Olivia Donnelly. I'm not sure. But for the kid, this kind of stuff is exciting. Because for kids, there's very little in life that is as exciting as the idea of a spy. Being able to do things or see things without people knowing you're there. All my kids have gone through their their spy phase. Uh, William is still 
probably right in that spy phase. We've watched all the, the Spy Kids movies, I don't know how many times, and his last Christmas list had a ton of spy stuff, because spies have the coolest toys. Uh, he had, you know, he wanted these spy kits with walkie-talkies, and they got mirrors that let you see around a corner, and all those cool kind of things. When I was little, it was stuff like uh, decoder rings. You know, you'd eat 87 boxes of cereal uh, to get a plastic decoder ring that broke the next day. Uh, but it was spy stuff. Spy stuff's cool. And there's one thing that if you think about spies and you think about spy stories, there's one essential ingredient that every spy needs, every spy movie, every spy story needs. Without it, spies don't exist. Every spy has to have a mission. Without a mission, at least in the movies, without a mission, there's no James Bond. There's no Mission Impossible and whatever that guy's name is, Ethan something. Uh, there's no Johnny English. There are no spies without the mission. And especially in the movies, the mission has to involve saving the entire planet under seemingly impossible circumstances. As you look at Scripture, and as you look at what we've been going through so far in Matthew, and really the entirety of Scripture, you see that this idea of a mission, this idea of taking something that's absolutely impossible and coming at great cost, and something that is going to save the world, is not unique to spy movies. In the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you see that Jesus came and Jesus had a mission. There was a reason that Jesus came and it involved saving the world and it involved impossible, from a human standpoint, impossible circumstances. Jesus was to come and he was to live life on this earth among those that he'd created and he was to do it perfectly, without sin, without defect. And then he was to allow his creation, to hang him on a cross, to take his life. Then he was going to conquer death, and he was going to conquer hell, and he was going to rise again. And through all of that, through the accomplishment of his mission, he was going to enable us to have a relationship again with God. He was going to allow those who were called sinners to be called sons. Those who were far away to be brought near. Those who were dirty to be clean. Complete restoration with God. That was the mission. And Jesus addresses this mission later on in Matthew chapter 19. And he addresses, he addresses the seemingly impossible nature of this when he says, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus came so that mission impossible could become mission accomplished. And in the chapter that we're going to be looking at today, Jesus begins to reveal this mission. Very straightforward. He begins to tell the people, this is why I came. He doesn't give a lot of the details about how he's going to accomplish the mission at this point, or what exactly it's going to look like, or even what the role of the disciples is going to be, or what the role of, of us later is going to be. But he clearly, in three ways, defines the reason that he came here to earth. There's just a couple things. As we get caught up, there's a couple things I want you to see in, in chapter 8 quickly before we get into what I want to look at today. Chapter 8, if you go back one chapter, you look at the very beginning. Verse 1, when he came down from the mountainside, again, he was up on the mountain, he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. 
Now, I just want to point that out because that's very important as you get into the rest of this book because what you see happening here is really the beginning of the end for Jesus. Jesus is beginning to march towards his death because as large crowds gather, as large crowds follow him, this is fueling the fire of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are seeing people that used to blindly follow them now turning and beginning to listen to someone who's teaching something very different from what they're teaching. And their hatred is beginning to grow of Jesus. And this is really where it starts, where these crowds begin to gather. And you see throughout the book of Matthew and the other Gospels that these crowds kind of wane and they come and go as people that are just looking for what Jesus can do for them or just looking for what they can get out of it, or looking for someone that is just going to perform uh, these amazing things that they can see and be a part of. And when Jesus begins to teach some hard stuff, and Jesus begins to teach it, look, you want to follow me? This is what it really looks like. You see some of them fade away. You see some of them fall away. But it was as we get into chapter 8, this is where things begin to get really tense with the Pharisees. And it's because Jesus is now gaining notoriety. It's because Jesus is now beginning uh, to draw a following after him. And then as you go through chapter 8, there's, there's three things that we see Jesus show his authority over. Three things that he shows his power over. You see him healing a paralytic. And so once again, he's already done this earlier in the book, but once again, he's showing his authority. He's showing his power over the physical He's showing that he has authority over the physical body. He has the authority to heal. And then you see he has authority over nature. Chapter 8 contains a story where Jesus calms the storm. And so here you have the man that's already shown his authority over the physical body. Now he's showing his authority over nature and the natural realm. And then he takes it one step further and he shows his authority in the spiritual realm as well. And you have the story of Jesus driving out demons. And so again, he's beginning to reveal who he is. He's beginning to real, reveal the authority that God has given to him. And then as we get to chapter 9, Jesus really ratchets it up a little bit here. And you see him do something really for the first time uh, in the book of Matthew. Listen as I read the first two verses of chapter 9 here. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. So he's come back to, uh, to Nazareth. So he would have crossed over... Uh, the Sea of Galilee, and then it would have been a little bit of a journey, but he's come back to his, ta- his own hometown, which again, is a small town. It's a little tiny town, but he's back in Nazareth. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, up to this point, people have brought those with disease, people have brought those with uh, sickness, with uh, paralyzed people, lepers, all those different things to Jesus, and Jesus has healed the physical part of it. He's healed the physical body. But here you see a shift. Here Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's already shown that he has power over the physical. He's already shown uh, that he has power to heal. But now... Jesus is claiming for himself something that belongs only to God. Because only God can forgive sins. Only God has the ability to forgive sins. And Jesus isn't saying, son, God has forgiven you. Jesus is saying, you're forgiven. By his authority, you're forgiven. And so he's elevating to that place, uh, himself to that place of God, to equality with God, to equal in authority as God. This is really the first time in Matthew we see him claiming uh, divinity, claiming the divine side of 
his nature. And can I tell you that the Pharisees didn't like it, surprisingly enough. The Pharisees lose it, and they're already beginning to look for ways that they can nail him to the wall. How can they, how can they turn the crowd against him? How can they turn people against him? And this is what they say in verse 3. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming, speaking sacrilegiously about God, spreading truths about God, that, or spreading things about God that are not true in their mind. Now, we look at that today and we think, well, blasphemy, that's not that big a deal. We see it all the time. But in that day, in the Jewish culture, blasphemy was punishable by death. If you were found to be guilty of blasphemy, you were sentenced to death. And so they're enraged, they accuse him of blasphemy, and then listen to how Jesus replies. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Jesus basically says, do you want to see my authority? Do you want to see the power that I have? Get up and walk. I would have loved to have been there. (laughs) I would have loved to. So many of these exchanges, I I don't know. I'm drawn to all the stories about Christ, but for me, maybe it's my competitiveness. Maybe I'm just combative. Maybe I'm a jerk. I don't know. But I love the stories of Jesus and the Pharisees. I just love the way that he interacts with them. I would have loved to have seen the look on their faces when he just says, okay, I get what you're saying. I get what you're thinking. Well, you know, if you really want to see it, okay, get up and walk. And the man stands up and the man walks out. Now, the crowd saw that, but we have something very interesting in verse 8. This is what verse 8 says. Again, showing people still don't get it, that there's a lot of work to be done. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God. A good result, all right? And important to note that when the supernatural occurs throughout Scripture, the result is always people worship God. People are drawn to God. People are pushed closer to God. And that's important to note because you see a lot of stuff today that, in my opinion, is fake, is not real, is not true. And in almost all of those cases, the end result of that is it draws attention to the person doing it. It draws attention to what they want attention drawn to, and glory is not given to God, and God is not glorified through it. But you see here, the result of this miracle is that people praise God. But then listen, they praise God who had given such authority to a man. So again, they still don't get it. They still don't see that this is the Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is the Son of God. This is one who is equal in authority, equal in personhood as God himself. They still see this as, wow, that's really cool that God could do this through this guy. And it kind of makes sense. You remember where he is? He's in Nazareth. These are the people that watched him grow up. These are the people that saw him as a little kid running around. So for them to try to wrap their minds around the fact that this Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter, was the Messiah, would have been tough. Would have been tough for them to get that far, to make that leap. But Jesus begins, or continues to show his authority in chapter 9. And now as we get into the rest of chapter 9, you begin to see his heartbeat. You begin to see this mission. Why he came, why God sent him. And the first way that we see this mission revealed is in who he calls. Who he calls. 
Jesus is still in the process of pulling together uh, his group of disciples, pulling together that inner circle that are going to walk with him and serve with him and learn from him. The men that he would use after his death and resurrection, after he returned to heaven and was taken back up, these are the men that he would use to change the world. These are the men that he would use to establish the church. These are the men that he would work through to see thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, come to the point of understanding the gospel message that we were lost, but through Christ's sacrifice we're now found. Listen to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. What does that tell us about the mission? How do we see the mission revealed in that? Well, it's simple. If Jesus came to seek and save sinners, if Jesus came for the lost, then you would expect his work to include sinners. You would expect his work to include those who are obvious sinners in the eyes of the world. A mission that seeks sinners is going to involve sinners. It's the same for the church. And this is what a lot of churches don't get. A lot of churches still don't realize. The call on the church, the mission of the church, is to seek and save the lost. It's the same as what Christ's mission was. And so a mission that involves the lost, or is about the lost, has to involve them, has to include them. There has to be things that we're doing, actions that we're taking to try to reach the lost. A ministry that's going to be about seeing people freed from sin is going to include those who are in bondage. If we're going to be about the lost, then we've got to be intentional in our ministry. But here you see Jesus, and I think there's very, I think he was very, very intentional with this. You see Jesus going and including in his inner circle one that would have been thought by the Jews to be the absolute worst of the worst. Tax collectors were not liked. In fact, there's other places in Scripture where the word for tax collector and the word for pagan, someone completely apart from God, someone completely devoid of a relationship with God, they're used interchangeably. A tax collector in that day, first and foremost for the Jews, worked for the Roman government. And so not just were they bad people, they were traitors. They were traitors to their nationality. They were traitors to their religion. They were traitors to the people uh, that had brought them up, that they'd come up from. But worse than that, Rome had an idea and an amount that these tax collectors had to collect and had to give to Rome. But they were free to collect whatever they wanted. And they were free to use whatever means they needed to to collect that money. And so tax collectors were very wealthy people because they would collect what Rome required and then they would continue to collect. And they would build that wealth uh, through abuse and on the backs of the people. And so tax collectors were the most blatant of sinners. Jesus walks right by the pious, self-righteous Pharisees, and he goes to Matthew. He calls the sinner. This is the heart of his mission. This is what the mission is all about, and he invites him to follow. Just like before, when you have Jesus' account of, of calling the fishermen, 
He calls him and he says, look, follow me. That's the call. And that's how he calls Matthew too. follow me. And we're told that Matthew does. He follows. I think it's very interesting to note here, too, the simplicity of the call and the simplicity of the response. Jesus doesn't say, you go get your life figured out. You go fix every wrong that you've done. You go get yourself cleaned up. You go get it worked out. And then maybe if I think you're good enough, then maybe you can come with me. Maybe you can follow me. And Matthew doesn't say, I'll be there in a minute. Let me do this. Let me fix this. Let me take care of this. Jesus says, follow me. And scripture says, Matthew, follow. It's a simple call. And it's the same for us today. It's the same call in our lives today. When Christ begins to draw you, the call is the same. Follow me. It doesn't mean that we have to get life figured out first. It doesn't mean that we have to get everything taken care of. That's what God will do in our lives as we follow. But the call is still that simple. It's follow me. And for those of you who have taken that that step, for those of you that have chosen to follow Christ in your life, to follow someone, you have to be able to see them. When we went to England, we rented a car. They drive, you know, on the wrong side of the road, all right? I'm not sure why. They're backwards people over there. It was the worst experience of my life, hands down. I don't, I don't know how many accidents I almost had. Uh, my wife and I, uh, I mean, we don't fight. We're the perfect couple, but we came close. Um, she was sitting right next to me telling me how to do what I was trying to do, um, I almost disowned my son in typical, what were you, 18 at that point? In typical 18-year-old fashion, he knew everything, and he knew how to do everything. The boy had been driving for a year and a half at that point. He's like, Dad, you need to do this, you need to do, all right? No, but there was one day where the missionary we were with, the person we were with, um, we were going someplace. We didn't have a vehicle big enough for all of us, and so I got to follow him. You know how much easier that was? I didn't have to think. I didn't have to try to figure out what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to go, what side of the road I was supposed to be on. I just had to look at the bumper of the car in front of me, and I had to follow that bumper. The call to follow Christ doesn't make life perfect. It doesn't even necessarily make life easier. But we have the assurance that when he's leading, he's going to take us where we need to go. He's going to take us in the right direction. And it is always a whole lot better than trying to find that on our own. But to follow, you've got to be able to see him. And that comes through growing. That comes through discipleship. Being able to see the Father. Being able to discern his will. Being able to see where the Spirit's leading. Being able to see where he's working. That comes through growing. That comes through reading Scripture. Not just reading. That comes through studying Scripture. That comes through spending time on your knees in prayer. And so that call to follow is simple. Absolutely, follow me. And the response is yes. But God doesn't want you to stay where you were when He called you to follow Him. And that's what you see with Matthew here. You see growth in Matthew. Matthew didn't stay where he was. The, the term follow implies that you're going to go somewhere. And so the call in our lives, follow me, the initial response is simple, yes. 
but then it involves action. It involves moving. It involves following where he takes you. So the mission is involved there by who he calls. He calls the sinner. He, he calls the worst of the worst. And then he takes it a step further in verses 10 and 11. Later, Matthew invited, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors, so more of the worst of the worst, and other disreputable sinners. Now look, I don't have this in my notes, but when we come to faith in Christ, there can almost be that thought that we don't want to introduce Jesus to some of our worst friends because we're a little... Well, I don't know what Jesus is going to think about those people. You want to know what Jesus is going to think about those people? Those people are the reason that Jesus came to give his life. And so the first thing you see Matthew do, Matthew follows Jesus, and the first thing he does is he takes him to the people he knows. He takes him to the people that he loves. He takes him to the very people that needed him the most. There are some incredible lessons in this passage. I wish... Well, I wish we had a little bit more time there, all right? But he takes him to what's important to him, to the people that he loves. And verse 11 says, But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? This, to me, is a beautiful picture of the piousness, the pompous, the judgmental attitude of those Pharisees. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? And then Jesus reveals his mission by stating who it was that he came for. If there was any doubt left by calling Matthew, Jesus wanted to clear things up. These Pharisees, again, they are appalled. They cannot understand how a reputable teacher, as Jesus was, could lower himself. And could eat with this group of tax collectors, with, with this group of, uh, of sinners. For the Jewish people in those days, those who were the worst of the worst, those who were sinners, or those who, who weren't Jewish by birth or not following the religion of Judaism, they were nothing. They were almost non-people to them. In fact, some places in Scripture you see they, they refer to them as, as dogs. And so this idea... For the Pharisees, that Jesus had come for them. That Jesus had come for the ones that these Pharisees actively teach against. Again, you can see how uh, they would have been incensed by this. Jesus is teaching, Jesus is modeling, Jesus is showing everything that goes against what they've taught. And everything that goes against the system that they've set up. And so just to show them that this wasn't a mistake, this wasn't a one-time thing, this is what Jesus says in response to why he eats with such scum. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that's basically just saying it's, it's the inside, it's the attitudes of the heart not the outer acts, the outer trappings of worship. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right out there. His mission, why did he come? Not for the righteous. He came to call the sinners. 
So for the Pharisees to hear him say that that is the reason he came, to hear him state that that's the reason he came, those are the ones that he came to serve, those are the ones that he came to save, that would have been almost too much for them to process. And so now again, he has stated it. He said, this is my mission. I've come for sinners. What a beautiful truth. Thank God he came for sinners. Thank God he came for us. I think as a church, we need to be very careful that we look more like Christ here and not more like the Pharisees, unable to see past those outer appearances. If our purpose, our heart, our mission is the same as Christ then again, we need to be actively putting ourselves in a position where we can be an influence, where we can be a light in the lives of those who are unsaved, those who need a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one of the primary areas where we're called to imitate Christ. And for a lot of Christians, we're not always comfortable with this. Ephesians 5.1 gives us the command, Be imitators of Christ, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love. That goes back to what we talked about last week. Do unto others. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to imitate Christ. Christ came for the lost. Christ came for the needy. He came for the sinner. We need to have hearts that are broken over the destiny of those who die apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. A passion for the lost has to be a heartbeat for each one in this church, has to be the heartbeat of this church. We exist to reach the lost. We can't sit back and say, you know what? Bigger ministries can take care of that. Other ministries can take care of that. Our purpose is to reach the lost. We need to be concerned with other things. We need to be concerned with discipleship. Jesus taught that. Jesus modeled that. We need to be concerned with, with biblical teaching and biblical preaching and biblical instruction. Christ modeled that and Christ did those things. We need to be concerned with the relationship between church members, with fellowship, with, with doing life together, with helping people grow, with encouraging people. Christ taught that and he modeled that. But we are called to more than that. The reason that Jesus came, what moved him, what motivated him, what drove everything that he did on his ministry here on earth was love for the lost. That's the mission. Alexander Cameron, who is an author, says this, We are called to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. We are called to be fishers of men, again, active, not keepers of the aquarium. Just sitting around and looking at those who are already saved. And so if we're to imitate Christ, if we're to follow that command in Ephesians 5.1, this has to be our heart. It has to be about the lost. And then finally, the last way that he reveals his mission here is his mission is made clear by who he has compassion for. Moving towards the end now of the chapter, beginning at verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, so he's left Nazareth at this point, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. 
He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. If you read the entirety of chapter 9, Jesus has been going from town to town. He's been working with people. He's been dealing with people. He's been healing people. He's been teaching people. He's been spending time with people. At this point, as we get to the end of chapter 9, it would have made complete sense. And any of you that work with people on a regular basis, you know people can be exhausting at times. It would make complete sense if Jesus saw the crowds and said, I just need a minute. I need a break. I need to go off for a bit. Leave me alone. They can wait here if they want, but I need some time. But that's not the heart that you see. He looked out at the crowd, and he is filled, consumed, overwhelmed with compassion for them because he saw the need. He was able to look past the physical problems. He was able to look past the flawed belief systems. And Jesus saw the heart. He saw the spiritual need. And he saw the need that only a shepherd could fulfill. When Jesus looked at the crowd, and again, you see this throughout the way that he interacts with lost people. When Jesus saw and looked at the crowd, he saw them through the lens of his mission. He saw them through the filter of what he had come to do and what he'd come to accomplish. When Jesus looked out at those crowds, he saw them in light of eternity. He saw them in light of the kingdom of God. He looked out and he saw a harvest just waiting to happen. <clears throat> and as we look out around us, and I'm no different. I catch myself doing this all the time. As we look out around us and we see a world that is dark and just seems to, to revel in things that are ungodly and things that go against uh, the will of God. We look around, we see a world that just is seemingly evil. And the tendency can be just to sit back and judge and say, look at those people, they're terrible. Look at what they're doing. Or what's the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What did Jesus see, though, when he looked out? Jesus saw a harvest. Jesus saw potential. How would our lives change if that's what we saw when we looked out at the world around us? How would our attitudes change? If we began to look at people through the lens of the mission, if we begin to look at people through the lens of the purpose that we're here for, how would that change our lives? If instead of seeing people and being annoyed because they keep doing things that we know are wrong, what if we saw them as the potential harvest? And Jesus says to the disciples here, look, the harvest is plentiful, but you need to pray for more workers. Because as Jesus looked at the disciples, he knew that the disciples by themselves were not going to be able to handle what the kingdom was going to do over the course of the next years. The way the kingdom was going to grow, the way the kingdom was going to explode. He said, you need to pray for more workers. And I think that's the call on all of us. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. We need to pray that there's more workers. Now, that doesn't mean more Christians. It doesn't mean pray for more Christians. That means more Christians who understand their role in the way that God has set this up. God has chosen to work through us 
through people, through his church. The call for workers is a call for those who understand the mission, who are willing to live their lives in such a way that people are drawn to Christ and are willing to take a stand, share their testimony, share their faith, put themselves out there if it means that a harvest might take place. We have a tremendous opportunity because I think the fields are still ripe for harvest. We looked a few weeks ago at the command of Christ to stay on that narrow road. And I think this too is, is where we can get confused as Christians. We know that God wants us to keep our lives pure. He wants us to keep our lives free of sin. We're called throughout Scripture to separate ourselves from the world. But you have to understand what that means. That call is simply not to love the things of the world, the things in the world. Not to get comfortable with evil. Not to get comfortable with the things that we see going on around us. In every instance, the command to be separate refers to the prevailing attitudes of the world. We are to be different in how we act, in what we watch, in what we listen to, in how we order our time, in how we order our finances, in how we order our priorities. In not one instance does the call to be separate mean that we are to cut ourselves off from lost people. We're to have a different mindset. We're to have a different attitude. Again, we're not to be comfortable with the evil, the things we see around us in this world. But there's never a call in the life of a Christian to cut ourselves off from lost people. We cannot separate ourselves from those who need to hear God's message of hope. We are called to live lives that are separate from the ways of the world while still impacting the people of this world. In the late 1800s, there was a young Presbyterian pastor named A.B. Simpson. And from a wor worldly perspective, from the eyes of man, he was an incredibly successful pastor. As a young man, he had already uh, reached the pinnacle, really, of what people worked for. He had a huge church. People were flocking to hear him preach. He pastored the largest church in New York City, the world's premier city. And there was a growing unrest in him. Week after week after week, he was preaching the gospel to the saved. He was preaching the gospel to those who already had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he began to go out on the streets. He began to go to the docks, and he began to go to the slums. He began to go to areas where no one else was taking the gospel in New York City. And God honored that, and God blessed that, and hundreds of people gave their lives to Christ through that initial ministry of this man. And then a very interesting thing happened. He brought the people back to his church, and his board told him that these people were not welcome in the church. They were different. They weren't clean cut. They weren't the finished product. They, they didn't want them. He resigned that day. And he began a ministry and he began a movement, in his words, to reach the unchurched and neglected masses both here and abroad. And out of that movement, a denomination was born. Out of that movement, the Christian and Missionary Alliance was founded. The Alliance was founded on the mission of Christ to reach the lost. And we are now a part of that vision that began almost 150 years ago. 
How are we doing? <laughs> How are we doing with the lost here in Mansfield? How are we doing being involved with the lost overseas? Lost people moved Christ, and he prayed that workers would go and reap a harvest. I think we'll recognize the time to harvest when we understand that he still calls sinners like us to join in the work. When we learn to follow day by day, when we learn to draw closer to him, and when we truly understand who it is that he came to save, and when we take that mission on as ours as well. Because our mission, should we choose to accept it, hasn't changed at all. It is as simple and as complex as Jesus lays it out here. To seek and save the lost. We can be known as a lot of things here at Community Bible Church. We can be known for... Our programs, we can be known for our music, we can be known for our preaching. But in the end, all of those things will fade away. But if we are a church that's known for our passion for the lost, if we're a church that's known for our passion for the souls of men, then we can take with us into eternity the only thing that matters. People. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your call, your mission is so incredibly clear. Seek and save the lost. Go and find those that need to hear the good news. Go and plant seeds. Go and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet for so many of us, this fails to translate into our everyday lives. Lord, I pray that you would just light a fire here at Community Bible Church. Make us a people willing to share the gospel. Make us a people willing to live the life. Make us a people who are willing to do unto others. Make us a people whose mission is to seek and save the lost. We want to see a harvest here in this place. We want to see your spirit move. We want to see your spirit transform lives and change lives. And Lord, as we put ourselves in a position to see that happen through us, we believe that you'll move and we believe that you'll act. And we look forward to seeing what you'll do in this place. In Christ's name, amen.